All right. Woo. Man. Hello. All right. I did tell him to turn up the game, so this is my own fault. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I hope you are doing well and that you had a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving week. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so I'm not going to have a very long introduction. In fact, you actually just heard it. Uh, and so jumping right in, let us go ahead and pray together that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit gives us guidance as we walk through this passage together. Lord, we thank you so much yet again for the immense privilege of coming together to worship you, to sing praises to your name. Lord, I thank you so much for the, the fact that, Lord, we don't have a God that's far away, but one that we can come to and talk to and cry out to. So, Father, I pray, God, that you are the one guiding us this morning. Not our own preconceived notions, Lord, not, not our emotions, Father, but, Lord, you. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So last week, we went into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and his disciples. And they had just finished the Passover meal, which was, which was kind of a fairly long event. It takes several hours to actually get through the entire Passover meal. And it was capped off by Jesus transforming it into what we now know as the Lord's Supper. He infused new meaning into the elements of the Lord's Supper. So after all of this, uh, after the Passover meal, after instituting the, uh, the Lord's Supper, it would have been fairly late into the evening before they actually got to the garden. So it was, it was really dark and it was uh, in the middle of the night and in the darkness of the night, in the garden, the fullness of what was going to soon happen to Jesus began to consume him. Do you remember that from last week? And this is the moment that he had been working to for his entire human life on earth. The moment that he would be handed over as a sheep for slaughter. And if you remember from last week, Jesus tells his three closest disciples as they walked further and further into the garden, when he was just overwhelmed by what was about to happen, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. And so he leaves his three disciples and in sorrow and despair, he went away to plead to his father to have the cup of judgment in wrath, our cup of judgment in wrath, pass from him. And yet, for the joy of setting those who are enslaved to sin and death free, he submitted fully to the will of the Father and said those wonderful words, yet not as I will, but as you will. He would see this mission through to the end, even though it meant not just physical pain, but it also meant that he would suffer the punishment for our sin that would be delivered to Him on the cross by the Father. And we also saw last week that the closest friends of Jesus, His three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, were unable to fight off 
the weaknesses of their flesh to stay awake and keep watch and pray with Jesus, which reminds us of our own weaknesses, of the weaknesses of our bodies and how much we desperately need the strength of God to keep us from giving in to temptation after temptation that wants to drag us into sin. And then finally, last week's passage ended with the appearance of Judas on the scene. You see, in the Gospel of John, we read that Judas, at some point during the Passover meal, he actually slips out of the upper room and he goes to meet with the religious elites who, who desperately wanted to arrest Jesus and, and we know wanted to kill Jesus. And he goes and finds them and he ends up leading them exactly where he knew Jesus would be. Judas leads them to the garden. And as we look at the opening verses of our passage, Judas arrives with this well-armed mob made up of temple guards and even Roman soldiers sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, one thing that we really need to remember at this point in time that, is that photography wasn't invented yet, right? It wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. There were no pictures of Jesus to pass around. They were in Jerusalem at Passover as well, which means that there were thousands of thousands of people packed within this one area. And so Judas's role in all of this was extremely important because the mob sent to arrest Jesus probably didn't actually know what he looked like. Jesus didn't have an Instagram account where he filmed his sermons and things like that. So, so people weren't able to actually see him if they didn't weren't in proximity to him. So they didn't know what he looked like. They only had vague descriptions of him, which would have been something like, you know, he's the guy with the, with, I don't know, the beard, the somewhat long, dark hair and brown eyes, wearing a robe, which pretty much everybody. And so understandably, it wouldn't have been easy for this, this mob to identify Jesus in order to arrest him. And so they devised a plan with Judas to greet Jesus the way that was actually pretty common for Jewish disciples in this time to greet their teachers, with a kiss on the cheek. It was actually a sign of respect and loyalty. And so Judas, playing the part of a hypocrite perfectly, approaches Jesus with what seems like almost this jovial attitude in verse 45 saying, Rabbi! Notice the exclamation point. Rabbi! And he kissed Jesus on the cheek. Now, I don't think there's a historical account or a movie or a play or a book or a poem or anything of the like that has been able to overshadow this betrayal. And I think William Shakespeare was attempting to actually come close to this in his play Julius Caesar as Caesar is betrayed by his best friend and confidant Brutus. But the difference is, is that no one, real or imaginary, has betrayed the second person of the Godhead in quite this same way as Judas does here in Mark 14. Now I do want us to back up just a little bit and take a look at the first verse of our passage today. Specifically at a line that I think can almost be missed in the middle of all the drama that's actually unfolding here in this passage. So look at verse 43 with me. And it reads, And immediately, as he, meaning Jesus, was speaking, Judas, 
one of the twelve. One of the twelve. Stop there just for a second. And if you have your Bibles open, go back a few verses to verse 10. And read what it says there. It says, Then Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now, as we have spoken before in previous sermons, when something is repeated in Scripture, especially when it is in close proximity to each other, it, is, it means almost the exact same as if we were to underline it, to stress its importance. Such as when Jesus would begin teaching by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. He is stressing the importance of what he's about to say. He's like, hey, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. And so I want you to notice how Mark, in, in this chapter, in this passage, in these two passages that are actually very close together, Mark is reminding us not once, but twice, that Judas is one of the twelve. Judas is one of the twelve. He is reminding the readers of this gospel that Judas was not just a fan in the crowd that would sometimes follow Jesus around. That's not accurately describing Judas. He was in Jesus' inner circle of disciples. He was one of the twelve that was in the boat when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. He was there when Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread and fish. And he saw with his own eyes Jesus walking on water. He listened for three years as Jesus, God himself, taught that he was the one to whom the prophets in the Old Testament were speaking of. He was there when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in history. Judas was one of the twelve. He was trusted. He was loved. He was a brother to the other disciples. And he was a hypocrite of the highest order. Did you notice when we were going over the passage last week, or maybe the week before, of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and Jesus actually said, one of the twelve here with me now is going to be one of those who stabs me in the back, essentially. And notice how no one even suspected Judas. None of their eyes turned to him. They didn't all awkwardly turn their heads and, and stare at him or point their fingers. No one knew. No one suspected a single thing. Now here's a difficult lesson that we see here. And this is a really difficult lesson. It is possible, as one commentator said, to be attached to an army or even a family and never truly belong. So therefore it is possible, as we see here in the life of Judas, to attach yourself to the name of Jesus but never truly belong to the person of Jesus. See, Judas, to a certain degree, knew Jesus extraordinarily well, right? He just got done talking about all the things that he saw Jesus do, heard Jesus preach. He probably even knew <clears throat> what Jesus' favorite food was. Probably knew his, his favorite song, his favorite hymn. 
where he enjoyed visiting the most on his travels, the hobbies he liked to partake in as they were all sitting around the campfire, all these things Judas probably knew. I mean, you spend every day with someone for three years and you learn quite a lot about them. And despite all this, Judas never truly belonged to Jesus. So my friends, today it is possible to be a church member. It's possible to be a regular attender. Or even teach a, a Sunday school class or, or lead a ministry. And brothers and sisters, it's even possible to be a pastor and still not belong to Jesus. And this is the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 7, 21-23. Right? Here, Jesus is speaking of the final judgment that will occur when He comes again. And He says this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in Your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? What does Jesus say? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And again, you see that double use of language there, right? What does the double use of Lord mean? It means that what Jesus is saying is that in the final judgment, there will be those who say to him, Lord, I, I knew you. Lord, I did all these things in your name. I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did all of this in your name. And Jesus will respond to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You worker of lawlessness. When you look at that, we can be kind of confused. We can, we can be confused that, that people have the ability to cast out demons in the name of Jesus or prophesy in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus still say, I never knew you. Well, friends, we need to remember that back in Mark 6, even Judas cast out demons. He was one of the apostles sent out to cast out demons, to heal, and to preach. And all that means is that God can use anyone. He is powerful enough to use anyone, even those who do not trust in Him for His good purposes. It talks about the bigness of our God, not about the genuineness of faith in Judas. And so there are many in today's culture who think that they know Jesus. And it's because in their hearts, they do not worship the one true Lord of Lord and King of Kings. They bow down to a Jesus that is indistinguishable from other false gods and other false religions. They do not love the Jesus who spoke the words of John 14, 6, for instance. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They do not love the Jesus 
He said these words in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. They don't, they don't love that Jesus. Judas didn't love that Jesus. There are so many in the church who think that they are Christians, but in the final analysis, they are not truly trusting and resting in Jesus and His work on the cross. Their hearts... They walk away from faith. This is why you see Christian artists who are deconstructing their faith, whatever that means, so often. Or people who have been born and raised in the church, again, even pastors who leave the church. And this is precisely what John meaning those who previously professed Jesus leaving the church, that's what he's talking about here, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were, they were part of the church, right? To be, to be, uh, to go out. elect, God's beloved children in the first place. That's what John is saying here. Their hearts were never truly changed by the gospel. The eyes of their hearts never truly opened to their need of a Savior. New birth never truly message, right? It's not necessarily one that really leaves you feeling good. And often after a message like that, the number one thing that can often be running through our minds right now is, well, what about me? What about, what about me? Am I like Judas? Do I truly belong to Jesus? Am, am I known by Him? How, how can I know if I'm truly saved? 
Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. So, we've got faith, right? We've, we've got faith. We believe Jesus is real. We believe He rose from the grave and that He did all of that for the forgiveness of our sins. We believe, right? We're right there on track with this Father. But also, mixed in with that belief is Faith is present in this man, but it is obviously mixed with doubt and uncertainty. And Jesus, I, I know that you've healed others. Jesus, I, I know that you've cast out demons before. Jesus, I know you do this. Jesus, I'm also struggling. And I'm not sure that you can or will. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. But despite this man's struggle, Jesus sees the faith, even though it is small. What is so wonderful, brothers and sisters, is, is that even minuscule faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, you may have heard, is enough to bring your soul into eternal life through Jesus Christ. And the glorious thing is that it is not the degree it's not the quality or amount of faith that saves, but it is the object of our faith that saves. How wonderful is that? How beautiful is that? In John eleven twenty five through 26 Jesus proclaimed, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, not in how much you can believe in your belief in him, but if whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, the Christian, the question is, do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life? Is that something you believe in? No matter, how, no matter how weak that faith may feel right now. You believe in it. And do you love the Jesus found within these pages? Not, not in the one that the, that the culture tries to peddle you, but the one found within Scripture. And even though you struggle from time to time with doubt, does your eternal security rest in what Jesus did on your behalf on the cross? If your answer is yes, then you are, you are saved. And not only are you saved, but you're secure in the hands of our God. If you're a believer, find assurance in, in this verse. Find your assurance in this verse even if you find yourself in a moment of weak faith, and know that Jesus, in this passage, is speaking about you. John 10, 28-29. Jesus is saying, I give them eternal life. Jesus gives you eternal life. And they will never perish. You will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus Christ our Savior. No one. No one. And he goes further. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, even yourself. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You're doubly protected, actually triply protected, because we're also told we're given the Holy Spirit as a seal of our salvation, as a down payment. It's like you've got three life jackets on that won't come off. 
Your salvation does not rest on the strength of your faith, but the strength of whom you have faith in. It is in Christ, not in ourselves, that our assurance lies. I'm going to end this section, not this sermon, so don't get too excited, just this section of the sermon, with these wise words from a pastor of many years named Jason Halopoulos. And I did practice that a few times before I said it. Jason Halopoulos. He says this, Faith does not look to itself. It looks to another. And in Christ, the object of our faith, salvation, lies. Therefore, it is also in Christ that our assurance lies. In those moments when assurance escapes us, let us look to Christ in faith. Assurance is nurtured as we grow in our understanding of grace, especially in our union with Christ as it relates to our justification, which means our right standing before God, and adoption into His family. We grow in this grace as we press into His Word and come to Him in prayer. And I know this is a little long, but he continues. He says, I want to note a pastoral issue that often emerges in this realm. Over the course of my pastoral ministry, I've found that many struggle with assurance because they direct their eyes within rather than without. Make no mistake, introspection serves its purpose in the Christian life. We are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, meaning that we as believers should examine our lives to see if we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We as Christians do want to see ourselves bearing good fruit. We do want to see that. And this is necessary and good, he says. Yet, I find that many Christians suffer from overzealous introspection. Any of you struggle with that? Overzealous introspection. Like a medieval inquisitor, we lay our souls upon the rack and inflict torture with constant accusatory questions. Do I bear enough of the fruit of the Spirit? Is my faith solid enough? Have I confessed and repented sufficiently? Have I tricked myself into thinking I'm a believer? And all the while, we forget to look to our Savior in faith. The great shepherd's promise, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, seems too foreign to too many of his sheep. Dear struggling Christian, if our gaze is always within, assurance will remain fleeting. No doubt, we need to examine our lives and test the fruit, but true assurance, lasting assurance, secure assurance, comes from looking to Christ in our union with Him. can't say it better myself. Now, let's get back to what is happening in the garden. Judas has come. He has shown that he was never truly among those who loved and delighted in Jesus. He has identified Jesus and given the signal for the small army to come and make their arrest. And so let's pick up at verses 46 to 47. It says, And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, the other Gospels actually fill in a little bit of the details here and tells us that it is Peter, of course it was Peter, who struck out against the man whose name is Malchus, cutting off his ear. 
the other Gospels also tell us that Jesus' other disciples had the mind to begin fighting as well, but Jesus ordered them to stop, and he walked up to Malchus, and he healed his ear. Now, there's a whole sermon right there. But for the sake of time, we're not going to stop for too long. But I just want to say just really quickly, how amazing is it that Jesus, even, even as this man Malchus was about to carry him away to be crucified, even though Jesus was perfectly innocent, Jesus still chose to heal him. He takes the time to heal this man. How incredible is that? Again, there's a lot that can be said there, but for time's sake, we'll move on. And as we progress forward in the narrative, there is one thing I want you to remember, and it is something that we've touched on before, but it bears repeating again and again. It is at every point, at every moment, Jesus, in this, at every, every single second of his life on earth, is in complete and utter control. Control never leaves Jesus' hands. I actually want us, at this point, <clears throat> to jump over to John's account of Jesus' arrest in chapter 18 of the book of John. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open it up and take a look. As the guards came into the garden to arrest him, Jesus goes to meet them and he asks them, whom do you seek? And the way Jesus replies is, or so the way that they reply is, we, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And to that, Jesus says to them, I am he. And what's important to understand here is that in the Greek, his response is actually just two words, not three. His response is, ego imai. Ego imai. Which translated literally is, I am. And one commentary notes that prompts another question because in Scripture, I am can mean two very different things. For instance, if you lived in Jerusalem during this time period and you knocked on the door of your friend and they said, who is it? You would typically answer that the normal Greek response at this time would be, I am, not it's me. You would say, I am. However, the phrase I am also carries with it a lot of meaning from the Old Testament. It is also the name of God, Yahweh. In Exodus 3, as God is speaking to Moses through the burning bush, God declares that He is the eternal, self-sufficient, pre-existing God, and He says that He is the great I Am. So the question is, in what way did Jesus mean it here? Well, the answer comes from what happens to the soldiers in John 18.6. John 18.6, which says, When Jesus said to them, I am He, or more accurately, I am, they drew back. This mob of soldiers drew back from that one statement, and they fell to the ground. They fell to the ground. So I don't think we really need to guess the way that Jesus meant it here. Jesus declared in that moment that they had not come to arrest some normal, mere human being, but they had actually come to arrest God Himself. The same great I Am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And so the power of Jesus' voice declaring the great I Am forced all of these soldiers on the ground, displaying His deity for all to see. And so brothers and sisters, we should never think that even for one moment that Jesus was not in complete control at every turn. 
don't know if you've ever thought about that. What that actually means for the character of God, the character of Jesus, and his incredible love for us. Because if Jesus was in control at every single moment of his arrest, that means that he was choosing again and again and again and again to allow himself to suffer indignity, to suffer injustice, to suffer torture and death, all for our sake. Sometimes we can read the passage of the Garden of Gethsemane and think that this this last decision, this last temptation of Jesus trying to get out of what's coming in front of Him was the last time that He had the chance, the option to stop it all. That, That after He said, not what I will, Father, but what You will, that it just kind of went its course. And there was nothing he could do uh, from that point on. He was just kind of swept up in the current of events that came after. But that's not the case at all. Again and again and again, he chose to endure it all. Every single moment. Never thought about that. He could have chosen to exercise his authority and his power in the courts of the Sanhedrin in the court of Herod, in the presence of Pilate, on the pathway to Golgotha, even on the cross. He could have chosen to deliver himself from all of the pain and suffering that he endured. But he didn't. He didn't. He constantly chose to endure it all to secure our salvation. So that he could hold you within his loving hands and never let go. How beautiful is that? Back to our passage in Mark 14. Jesus says in verse 48 through 49, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. I think Jesus here is pointing out the cowardice. He had been in the open in Jerusalem teaching over the last several days in the temple. And they had ample time and ample opportunity to seize him at any moment during the day, but they had come in the middle of the night armed to the teeth like he was some bandit. But Jesus goes with them quietly. The will of the Father was going exactly as it was written in Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus truly was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He truly was numbered with the transgressors as they come out to capture him like some common thief. As they arrest Jesus, in verse 50, the disciples scatter. And even this was actually ordained beforehand by God. This was a prophecy as well. Zechariah 13, 7 says, speaking of this exact moment, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And the sheep scatter. Jesus, once again, is abandoned and alone. Now, verses 51 through 52 gives us a uh, somewhat unusual detail in the account. It says, A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's weird, right? It's a little odd. Seems like a strange little detail to 
add in there. And church tradition will say that this was Mark inserting himself into the narrative, that it was actually him who went streaking through the night. But that is just conjecture, and there's no actual biblical evidence to say whether it was Mark or whether it wasn't Mark. So we don't, we don't really know who exactly the identity of this man is. But it still makes you wonder why Mark decided to add this little detail that does not really seem all that important in the larger narrative of what's happening here in the garden. But I'm going to give you the best possible reason that I have heard as to why Mark decided to add this detail in. And ultimately, I think it's a reminder to us of, of certain things. Because in Scripture, again and again, nakedness is often associated with judgment and shame. You see that all throughout Scripture. Think back to Genesis 3, to Adam and Eve right after they sinned for the first time. The first time human beings were aware of guilt and shame came with an uncomfortable awareness of nudity, of all things. And ever since then, human beings have covered their bodies with animal skins or, or pieces of cloth because it is built into our fallen humanity to equate shame and humiliation with nakedness. One theologian writing on this topic says this. He says, throughout the pages of Scripture, when God speaks of bringing judgment against the guilty, He does it by exposing their sin and stripping them of their clothes. A prime example of this comes from the book and prophet of Amos. Amos gives the Lord's list of transgressions by Moab, Judah, Israel, and so on, then gives God's response, which is this, Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. This is God's rebuke of His people. God then says, Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape. And here God was foretelling the conditions when he visited his judgment on his people. Then he says, The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day. As another example, the book of Revelation connects the judgment of God on the wicked to nakedness. You can see that in Revelation 3.17, 16.15, and 17.16. So as I bring this sermon to a close, and as we think about this poor naked man running through the night, and he's probably thanking God it was at night, I want us to come away with, with this understanding. The motif of clothing and nakedness, as the same theologian said, is at the heart of understanding our own redemption. Our own righteousness, we are told, is like rotten and filthy rags. What we're told in Isaiah 64, 6. And the only way any of us can stand in God's presence is to be stripped of those rags and then clothed afresh in the garments of Christ's righteousness. And that's the gospel. That right there is the simple gospel. You and I can never stand in the presence of a holy God unless we are clothed from on high with a righteousness that is not our own. God has provided for us a covering for our shame and nakedness. He has invited us into His redeeming presence to experience that sense of safety that we have in knowing His Son has covered our sin with His blood on the cross and has covered our nakedness with His perfect righteousness. That's why I believe that, that God, who, in, who inspired our Scripture, 
breathed out our scripture. Had Mark add that in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, you say, Lord, and through your, not through our brother in Christ, Timothy, Lord, that your scripture is God-breathed. That means, Father, you, God, are the author of this amazing collection of 66 books. And that you have in there for us the things that we desperately need to, to live the godly life, to come into a deeper relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray, God, that as we leave here this morning, that we, we don't forget that. That we go out and we remember that day in and day out, Lord, we need to be fed by your word. And we need to come into your presence in prayer knowing that you hear us. And Father, Lord, there will be some in this congregation, Lord, who are true believers, but who will struggle with their faith. And Father, if that happens, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you are gentle with them. I pray that you reassure them, that you let them know, Lord, that they are cradled in your hands, that they are deeply, deeply loved by you. And Father, let us never forget, Lord, that it is not by our good deeds, it's not by our works, it's not, not by just showing up to church that our nakedness, our guilt and shame is covered, but it is by your perfect righteousness. That's why you died on the cross, Jesus. So that the perfect life you lived could be credited to us and we can be clothed in your righteousness. Lord, we thank you. And I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.